Welcome to the fourth episode of QSource's Rethink Tobacco podcast series. This series focuses on increasing awareness in our communities around the health impacts of smoking and tobacco use. In this episode, you'll hear from our two experts and learn about the negative connection between tobacco use and behavioral health. QSource wants to welcome today to our conversation podcast and continue our Rethink Tobacco conversation with Dr. Jill Williams. And we have subject matter expert Deb Buckles with us back from IU Simon Cancer Center. Welcome to both of you today. We appreciate having you on and we would really like to get started and first learn about your background, what you're doing in the community and why you're so passionate about Rethink Tobacco and the conversation around the community and the smoking impact that it has. Well, I will start first. I'm Debbie Hudson Buckles. I'm a tobacco treatment specialist with 27 years experience. I am with the IU Simon Comprehensive Cancer Center and the Department of Community Outreach and Engagement. And I am the tobacco control lead. And one of the projects that I work on through that effort is Rethink Tobacco Indiana, as you mentioned, Kathy. And what we do is we are grant funded by the State Health Department's Tobacco Prevention and Cessation Commission to work with behavioral health care systems across the state of Indiana to reduce the burden of tobacco use in, among the behavioral health population because it's quite significant, especially in the state of Indiana. I have been quite honored to know Dr. Jill Williams for I don't even remember how long. I know we worked together in 2010, and she was here in Indiana then and helped us accomplish quite a few major feats, including some changes among uh, the Division of Mental Health and Addictions contract language with some of their partners. So she's been very instrumental in our work here and especially across the nation. So I'm quite thrilled that she's able to join us today. So with that, I will throw it over to Dr. Williams. Thanks, Deb. Hello, everyone. My name's Jill Williams. I'm an addiction psychiatrist. I'm at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Jersey. And as Deb mentioned, I've been involved in the treatment of tobacco use disorder for more than 20 years, but I also treat a wide range of addictions. And there's certainly new trends now with the opioid crisis and the rise in cannabis use that we're gonna talk about today. It's our honor to have both of you and the subject matter experts joining us today. We wanna jump in and learn a little bit more about the subject matters of tobacco use and its effects that it does have on folks that have a pre-existing mental illness. What are some of the concerns that you're hearing out in the community? Well, we have a lot of evidence that populations with a behavioral health condition, whether that's defined as having a mental illness or as another substance use disorder, use tobacco at higher rates than the general population. Even with the decline in smoking rates that we see in the general population, we are starting to see them in the behavioral health population as well. But there's still a disparity which remains where the group uses uh, tobacco at two to three times a higher rate than the general population. So that's always a concern. There's also evidence that not only do they smoke more, but they tend to be more addicted to tobacco, which means you have a harder time quitting. 
And also, it means you may be more likely to have uh, more health and other uh, negative consequences as a result of this. One of the issues over the years has been the difficulty in getting treatment, especially if you're served in the behavioral health system of services. Uh, not all providers will offer a treatment for tobacco use disorder, and that's something that Deb and others in the country have been trying to change to educate the, the staff about the urgency in treating tobacco use disorder and trying to encourage programs to expand their services. Deb, what are some of the local solutions or local interventions that you have learned from Dr. Jill Williams and your connections with her through the years to impact the mental health field, but also the behavioral health units and even our community members that might be seeking treatment in some local community groups? So in my many years of relationship with Dr. Williams, she has taught me so much. She got me started in this field and and that's why I got involved and, and created the Rethink Tobacco Indiana project. From her, I learned about the disparity and how common this was in this population and about the heavy health burdens in this population as well. So Rethink Tobacco Indiana, we still play a major role in the state of Indiana and in helping behavioral health providers to understand this. And we do this a number of ways. We have a website, RethinkTobaccoIndiana.org, where we have many resources on there available for behavioral health providers. We provide a number of different training opportunities. And again, all of this is free because we are grant funded. We also provide technical assistance and training to behavioral health systems and providers so that they know about this disparity. They know what to do, they know what the situation is, and that we provide those resources for them, as well as the training I mentioned as well. We also work very closely with our State Department of Health to provide the Tobacco Treatment Specialist Training Course, which we'll offer again in November, November 9th through the 11th. So our goal is to educate the behavioral health providers and help them to integrate evidence-based tobacco treatment into their systems. We also know about the Indiana Tobacco Quit Line, which is available to all Indiana residents, and they have a behavioral health enhanced program and so those individuals will get more services available through that quit line, including 12 weeks of free NRT, and that's combination NRT, so they can get patch and or gum and lozenge, in addition to seven prearranged counseling calls from highly trained quit coaches. So those are just some of the things we have available here in Indiana. As part of Rethink Tobacco Indiana, we're also looking to expand our partnerships with different behavioral health systems as well. We'd really like to move into the recovery houses and residential treatment. And DMHA has just announced that they're going to offer a new RFA to offer funds for agencies to do this with the priority on recovery and residential treatment settings. That RFA should be out in a couple of weeks too. So that's a huge win for the behavioral health providers and systems to be able to get funding to make these changes and offer this very, very needed intervention. This is Don. I, I have a question kind of about the tobacco use cessation or the tobacco cessation in behavioral health patients. 
I know some behavioral health providers have some hesitancy to recommend tobacco cessation for their behavioral health patients because they're worried that the cessation process will cause some additional stress and increase mental illness symptoms. What kind of messages do you have for those providers why it's still important to, to recommend and provide tobacco cessation? Sure. When I got started in this field 20 or 25 years ago, there was a lot of concern about that. The idea that somehow uh, people would be jeopardizing their recovery if they were trying to stop using other addicting substances or somehow worsen their mental health if they tried uh, to quit smoking. We now have decades of evidence to show that that is not the case, that uh, people can successfully quit smoking without evidence that it worsens their mental health. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that people's depression and anxiety actually improve when they quit smoking. So actually the opposite of some of what people feared. And now again, compelling evidence that if you're able to stop smoking, you have better recovery from alcohol and drugs and actually less chances of relapsing and going back to using. So the overwhelming evidence is really in support of treatment that it enhances overall uh, outcomes in terms of mental health in addition to the many ways it would enhance your overall quality of life. Oh, that's wonderful. I appreciate you sharing that for our listeners. So I wanted to go back real quick and ask Dr. Williams the difference between, when we talk about smoking, the difference was between the tobacco and the marijuana that is out there. What does that look like if you have a mental health disorder and seeking treatment for those? Well, we know that Although use of combustible cigarettes is on the decline in this country, the opposite is true for cannabis use. So cannabis use continues to increase in the last few years. And there's lots of uh, co-use among populations. Not only do people both smoke or vape tobacco products and uh, cannabis products, but literally they can actually use them in the same product at times. It's a little challenging to tease out, but increasingly there are populations that seem to co-use both nicotine and tobacco products as well as cannabis products. And that's of course cause for concern. There's a lot we don't know about the impact of that. However, early information really suggests that people have worse outcomes than even if they used one or the other product alone. So for example, if you're a co-user of both tobacco and cannabis, there's actually evidence that you have worse mental health, mental health symptoms compared with if you use one or the other. So that's a cause for concern. We know that if you use both products, you also seem less likely to quit them. If you're a tobacco smoker, you're less likely to quit cannabis. And if you're a cannabis smoker, you're less likely to successfully quit smoking cigarettes. That is obviously something that we need to pay attention to in our treatments and be thinking about, especially if people seem like they're not doing well with our standard treatments. When we talk about mental illness, Dr. Williams, is there a link to any suicidal tendencies or any of those extreme tendencies when we talk about the use of both of those products? Yeah, so we have known for some time that use of any substance increases your chances of having suicidal ideation, 
and making suicide attempts. So that's a known relationship with substance use disorders. It was later discovered that tobacco has that same relationship that people who smoke cigarettes or use tobacco are also more likely than other people to have suicidal thoughts and to actually show uh, suicidal behaviors, including attempts. In terms of the co-use, I would say, you know, that's sort of a newer question. I'm not sure that that's been looked at, but certainly in general, we do know that substance use increases the chances of suicidality, and that includes a tobacco use. So I think this is especially important for our youth, too, because we do know that nicotine especially affects the developing brain and that nicotine permanently impacts learning attention, memory, mood, concentration, and impulse control, and makes individuals more susceptible to other addictions. And I think our youth are not aware of this. And I think many of our behavioral health providers are not aware of this. And there's this concern or this thought that, you know, well, it's only nicotine, it's just tobacco, they're just experimenting. It's not that big a deal. But this does have some very permanent effects that will cause problems later on. And I think it's important for people to know about that as well. And I do think that the issue around suicidal issues is very important too, as, as Dr. Williams mentioned. Electronic cigarettes also are a cause for concern. We don't want young people using them for a variety of reasons. And we know that when young people are using electronic cigarettes or vaping, as it's now often called, they're much more likely than their peers to go on and progress to smoke cigarettes, which are you know, even a higher risk, combustible cigarettes, or more likely to go on and become cannabis users. And so it's all very intertwined and, and tough to tease out. So there's the impact of the nicotine on the developing brain, which is enough cause for concern in and of itself, as well as the potential then for these people to go on and progress and, and use potentially more harmful substances. When we talk about working with behavioral health centers and those that are targeted with a specific treatment option, do you foresee any challenges or what are your concerns when, when we go into that type of organization? And the reason I ask is I, I live with someone who's in recovery. I know that when they have a specific treatment facility telling them that they need to tackle one addiction at a time and they're focusing on maybe their alcoholism or something that precedents their, their need to be in treatment, where does smoking fit into that equation and how do you change the conversation and what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, certainly there's a lot of tradition that separated behavioral health care from a lot of regular medical health care. And that may be where some of this started, that uh, people sort of viewed this as a health condition, although it's Technically, it is an addiction, a substance use disorder, and, and under the umbrella of behavioral health care, it was traditionally viewed really as a health condition, and so outside of the scope of services, perhaps, of what might you might think about in a behavioral health setting. Obviously, the issues with the disparity and the persistence of tobacco use in this population has brought attention to it, 
And I think systems have increasingly adopted this idea that they should treat tobacco use as part of usual services and provide integrated treatment for tobacco in the clients they serve. But unfortunately, that we have to undo some of this tradition and some of the myths that remain as barriers today. We have a great tradition in behavioral health services of hiring people who are in recovery themselves, of having peer-led services, which are such a valuable part of our service delivery system. However, if those people continue to use tobacco, you can imagine it can be a barrier to uh, moving forward in an overall system. So we need to support our staff and, and professionals and the people that also work in these settings and help them to become tobacco free so that we can have a greater impact also on the patients we serve. And to add to that, it is a culture change within this professional field of health providers as well. And this is a behavioral health issue. Rethink Tobacco Indiana is trying to address that by providing education to these behavioral health providers so that they understand tobacco use disorder is the most common form of substance use disorder. It's also the most undertreated and underdiagnosed substance use disorder. And it impacts the recovery from mental health and substance use disorder. So we're trying to put the focus on, on tobacco use disorder as a behavioral health issue. And that's why our behavioral health providers need to be addressing it with their patients. And we can only do that through providing education and training to these behavioral health systems. And so Kathy, your question about, well, if my loved one is being told they really should focus on one thing at a time, the only way we can really address that is providing them education and literature Literature is there, but sometimes providers are unfamiliar with it. They just don't know. Rethink Tobacco Indiana's goal or job is to help those providers understand that that belief system is in the past and that we have a plethora of research showing that people do better when they address their tobacco use disorder along with recovery. Deborah and Dr. Williams. Sometimes you hear about people you know, saying that they receive benefits from using marijuana, and there's not a lot of evidence one way or the other on that. I know as far as research that I'm aware of, I would like to hear what you know about that, the research you've been doing. Is there any evidence that marijuana helps or actually evidence contrary to that? Unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And remember, there's a lot of different topics under this. I mean, there's, there's medical cannabis, there's people talk about legalization, you know, potential medicinal benefits, say of nicotine, it can be quite confusing, I think, for people to sort through. Some of the concerns with medical cannabis include the idea that if you're smoking it, you're still putting a lot of toxins into your body, many of the same toxins that you would get from cigarette smoke, like carbon monoxide. You know, smoking the plant puts hundreds at least of chemicals into the body. Some of those may prove to have medicinal qualities, but right now the way we're doing it, there isn't really standardization in terms of dosing, there's risk for impurity. So there are a lot of concerns. In terms of the evidence for medical cannabis, I would say that there's moderate quality evidence that it may be helpful for certain pain conditions. 
or for some rare neurological conditions, like with a lot of spasticity. There's currently no evidence though that cannabis is helpful for mental illness. And that includes many diagnoses of which we don't have any evidence that cannabis helps depression or anxiety or PTSD or schizophrenia. And in fact, that has to be weighed with considerable risk for symptoms of paranoia, psychosis, and the risk for addiction. And so I'm quite cautious in terms of recommendations for psychiatric illness, because as I mentioned, we don't really have any evidence at this point. You know, out of the hundreds of things that are contained in cannabis, I would say that there is promise for CBD, uh, cannabidiol, which some early research suggests it may be helpful for both anxiety and for psychosis-like symptoms of schizophrenia. However, we have a really long way to go uh, before we really know that that's going to be an effective treatment for people. And even if it does turn out to be helpful, remember, we, we don't want to be giving people medicine that they're smoking because of the many risks associated with that. And the other thing about CBD to keep in mind is in and of itself, it is not addicting. So in a purified form, again, could really be a potential medication, but we're just not there yet today. Well, thank you both. I know the efforts are ongoing. QSource wants to continue to support you. Thank you. It's important information to get out. Thanks for doing this topic.